You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects' Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects' Journal. In this episode, we are leaving France and we are traveling much further afield to interview our next guest. And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, Director of 1.5 Architecture. I always believe that every building should be able to work on its own without being dependent on any artificial means, be it in the cold climate or in hot climate. I try to look back into the architecture that was before, and you see all these really simple techniques where you work with the facades or the walls, the blurring of the edges when we are in a climate like ours, uh, in a subtropical climate, a courtyard which can condition the air, a double wall which conditions the humidity and also the air. So all these really ingenious, simple techniques, but that doesn't mean to regress into the past, but you can always take the ideas, the essence of what it was, and then create something much more contemporary, which is of the time. Today, our guest is Bangladeshi architect Marina Tabasong. We are speaking to Marina from her home in Dhaka, where it is 11 p.m. Marina suggested this late evening hour so that there would be less background noise from the city on the recording. This conversation is a wonderful sequel to our last episode with French architect Philippe Madec, because both Marina and Philippe espouse an architecture rooted in geography and climate, albeit in very different contexts. Marina is the 2021 recipient of the Sone Medal, which recognized her approach as an architecture of relevance, one that will resonate with many of our listeners. If you don't know Marina's work, I refer you to her lecture at the Sone Museum, where she describes her journey in very personal terms. Her building, which may be the most well-known to our audience, is the Baitur Rof Mosque, which won the Aga Khan Award in 2016. After stints teaching at Harvard and in Texas, Marina now teaches at TU Delft and directs the Bengal Institute for Architecture, Landscapes, and Settlements. Marina, I'd like to start by sharing with our listeners an excerpt from a short text you wrote during the pandemic because it sets out your position with great clarity and passion. You said, The depleted resources of the earth need to heal and be replenished. We need a generation of architects who do not indulge in the madness of building, but take part in repair. A generation who can resist the temptation of the visual realm, who know how to stitch together fragmented societies, and who can build bridges and not walls, and who do not aspire to stardom, but connect to the earth. From this, I can imagine that you are an inspirational teacher. So in your Sohn Medal acceptance talk, you mentioned that your father was a doctor and that you would often wake up to a long line of slum dwellers outside your house awaiting treatment and that he would treat each one before leaving for the hospital. 
and you tried to apply that same compassion in your practice. On your website, you mentioned that you resist a fast rate of buildings that are out of place and context. What are the elements of your approach? And does this mean saying no to certain clients? <laughs> well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's an absolute honor and pleasure. Of course, as you know, I'm from Bangladesh. I grew up here. I was born and brought up. I was born at a time when we were in a war. And so I grew up in a rather war-ravaged country. And from our very childhood, we've seen all these different economic strata. And this disparity has always been there. So the moment I get out of my house, let's say every single day, I am faced with these different layers of people and their existence and their values. From the very beginning of my practice, that has always been a question like, for a doctor it's probably much easier because you're a healer. So something like a very primary need for people, health. But as far as architecture goes, it was created in celebration of power. <laughs> Could be political or religious or cultural. But the people who actually, you know, architecture of people, which I generally call the vernacular as the architecture of people, has always been ignored in our mainstream architecture and the formal education. So it's, it's always been a, in one of my major queries. How do we make ourselves available to people who do not really need us in that sense? I mean, as a profession, how relevant are we when we just cater our services to 1% of the people. So, so that has been a major concern, especially living in Bangladesh, where you see that there is people who live in houses where you cannot really call it a house. It's living in the minimum of the subsistence. So that has been a question for a long time. But how do we do that? That's also, again, another question. Yeah. Um, I think the, the, the position that we take is uh, to be minimally intrusive, not to be too imposing, not to think of ourselves as saviors. We try to address this whole issue as respectfully, sharing knowledge in many ways, sharing our understanding and values with people. That's the premise we generally try to draw. And a lot of conversation, a lot of connection with people, trying to understand and then trying to create something which is, uh, which is we call it a co-creation process where everybody brings something to the table and then you create something. Everybody can own it. And that's where I think the whole idea of working with this 99% of people really works. Very soon after you graduated from the Bangladesh University of Engineering and Technology, you set up your first architecture practice, Urbana. And right from the start, you wanted to build a practice with a different ethos from the flashy, high-end developments appearing around Dakar. What were your concerns when you were starting off on your career? Right. Well, I graduated in the mid-90s. Like everywhere else, Shanghai, Dubai, all these cities were booming out of nowhere. <laughs> Instant cities in many ways. Instant buildings. I used to think that this is almost like fast food or something like a vending machine. You just put your money in and there comes out architecture. That really made me question, do I really want to pursue this as my uh, path or my career as, as an architect? Especially in the city of Dhaka, where 
definitely I was planning on establishing my practice, you could see that it's all about glass and steel and just stacks of floors. And the buildings were done within a, within a few months. You have a new building, old building gone, new building rising. So it, it really felt wrong, very, very wrong. And you see that the whole idea, the culture and history, which is so important in architecture to, to root it to the place has completely been lost or, or missed as an opportunity. So, so yeah, so from the very beginning, that has been my quest. So playing with the boundary between inside and outside has been one of the central concerns of modern architecture since at least the Barcelona Pavilion. But in Europe, there's always glass to separate the indoor climate from outside. In subtropical places like Bangladesh, allowing breezes in is important. And your early domestic projects, like the NEK10 house or A5 pavilion, have shutters and verandas to keep a comfortable environment. You've said that one of your obsessions is that a building must breathe without artificial means. Could you tell us about the feeling of living with this openness and connection to the local climate as a design parameter? The subtropical climate where we have heat and humidity at the same time, it requires that you have circulation of air. That's vital and important. So every time when we design a building, and I always believe that every building should be able to work on its own without being dependent on any artificial means, be it in the cold climate or in hot climate. And in the pre-air conditioning era or even pre-industrial era, we had those wisdom. If you look into the buildings, if you look into the sections, each and every building was able to perform on its own to give us the comfort that we desire. But over the time, as we became more dependent on technology, we've kind of forgotten all about those wisdoms. So in many ways, I try to look back into the architecture that was before. And you see all these really simple techniques where you work with the facades or the walls, the blurring of the edges when we are in a climate like ours, uh, in a subtropical climate, a courtyard which can condition the air a double wall which conditions the humidity and also the air. So all these really ingenious, simple techniques have disappeared. So my interest from the beginning was to find that, to recreate that connection. But that doesn't mean to regress into the past, but you can always take the ideas, the essence of what it was, and then create something much more contemporary, which is of the time. That's what I have pursued. And architecture has to be contextual. When you really concentrate on the context, which means your climate and your geography, architecture will be unique of that place and it will respond to the needs and the uniqueness of that area. Your mosque was completed 10 years ago now, in 2012. It's a building with a very unusual genesis, built on a plot of land owned by your grandmother who commissioned you to design the building. And you've told this story many times, so I'm going to direct our listeners to links in the show notes to hear more about this beautiful project, which uses bricks and light and air to create a place devoid of overt religious or architectural symbolism. You've described it as an elemental space for spirituality. But the aspect I wanted to ask you about was that this is also a place for the local community, a kind of community hub. 
And I wanted to ask about your involvement with the mosque, say, in the last 10 years. How is the building being used by the community, and has it evolved in the way you anticipated? Yes, I've always intended this to be sort of a refuge. As you know, Dhaka is one of the densest cities in the world, and it's in the periphery of Dhaka, but at the same time, that is growing very fast and becoming quite dense at this time. I know that since it's an unplanned growth, there won't be any any space for people to gather. So I've always intended this space to be a place of refuge in many ways that people can come together because, you know, we have prayers five times a day. So during that time, the mosque is busy with prayer. In a hot summer day, if you come into the space, it's quite cool and and you feel that sense of repose and quietness and and that tranquility, which uh, I think uh, everybody would enjoy. It's becoming so famous. We get a lot of visitors, (laughs) tourists, local, international, and people are quite proud. They show them around, and and so it remains open. In in many areas, women are not allowed in mosques, but which is absolutely not a right thing to do. But here, anybody and everybody is welcome, irrespective of gender, class, uh, religion. Marina, you often work beyond the boundaries of architecture with geographers, landscape architects, planners. Can you tell us about some of these collaborations and how they have shaped the direction of your work? I think it's pretty much embedded in the way we practice. Every project has a certain research background. And the research could be on the site, on the program, the typology, or even the location. When we did our our work in the coastal areas of Bangladesh, we included a geographer to really understand the geoformation. Bengal Delta, as you know, is quite unique because it It's constantly uh, eroding and creating new formations. So it's an erosion and an emergence, and it's a constant play. And why does that happen? Why is it so unique of the Bengal Delta? So if you do not know that, then you do not know why people behave in a certain way. If you do not understand the economics of living in a place which is so difficult and so vulnerable, I think it's important to know and to understand that before you even come to a resolution with the design. So those research parts are quite important for us. And that's why we have these collaborative works with geographers, landscape architects, historians, even filmmakers. Everybody brings in their own knowledge. And it's, it's always nice to have this horizontal sharing that enhances our ideas and, and then to crystallize the design. So for several years, I think you were teaching in Delft and at Harvard, so this must have involved a lot of traveling back and forth. And now you're focused on working closer to home. Was this brought about by the pandemic, or was this a shift in priorities on your part? I'm still teaching, and we, we, I taught at TU Delft even last year in spring semester. I'll be teaching this year too, so it's running for three years now. So it's a Dhaka-based studio that I started in TU Delft, before the pandemic and during the pandemic we haven't been able to travel but we've been doing this online hopefully this time we will be able to travel so it's a collaborative studio between bengal institute and the tu delft so the students are working together and since the site is dhaka based the bangladeshi students and the delft students come together and try to share their own knowledge and understanding and i think when you're in practice 
teaching gives you a certain kind of energy, more understanding. Being with young students gives you a certain kind of vibrancy, a uh, new way of looking at things. And I think that's so very important for my own personal growth. I think it's a reciprocal in a way <laughs> when you teach. You teach each other. <laughs> it's never a one-way process. And how did you find the approach to dealing with flooding in the Netherlands compared to your experience at home? Well, you know, we're both waterscapes. Both are deltas. Netherlands has dealt with it in a more engineering uh, way. And whereas our approach was a coexistence, trying to negotiate with the ways of the water. The reason being that the Dutch waterscape is much calmer than the one we have. <laughs> Ours is one of the three largest water systems that brings in all the water from the Himalayas, flowing it into the Bay of Bengal. And it's the Ganges estuary, actually, progradation that has created our delta. And it's so fragile. And when the water comes, it's just impossible that you can you cannot border water and land with a line. It's just not possible. You have to give water enough room. That's also something um, the Dutch learned from the Bengal Delta, because we tried a lot of different engineering that the Dutch has done, and everything failed <laughs> because this doesn't work here. And so now with this climate change, with the sea level rise, the Dutch is learning from us how to negotiate the ways of water and what we call the floodplain. So we leave a lot of space for the water to have enough space to move around. The Dutch is also trying to take that as an idea and, and they call it room for the water or the room for the river, which is, I think, very important because you cannot draw lines. It's just not possible. There is a lot of learning on both sides. I believe you've deliberately kept the size of your practice small. Can you tell us a bit about how you work and the, yeah, the current size of your practice? Yeah, I do keep my office quite small. I think it's a learning from my older practice. Didn't want to grow bigger than 10 to 12 people. At the moment, I think we are 10. The entire process is of collaboration. It feeds us with all the information and then the design comes. But most of the cases, the design would come from me as an initial sketch which is important for me that I keep a certain understanding. So that's why I try to focus on maybe four to five projects maximum in a year uh, when on, on the design table. And that's why we try to choose the projects, as, as you were mentioning, that a lot of projects we have to say no to. And we do say no to a lot of projects, actually. I want to take in projects which really excites me, brings a certain kind of challenge, which addresses a certain issue, so I try to be very selective about the projects we take in. So the work that you're doing in the Ganges Delta is very different from the context in which you grew up in Dhaka, in a very urban environment. How did you immerse yourself in this new context? And what can you tell us about some of the projects that you've been working on there? I believe you've been developing modular housing. Well, you know, the practice took a turn maybe in 2013 or so when we started working in the resort project in the, in the Delta. And that was probably the first time I was really out of my, my city life, going into a completely different location in my own country. We really spent a lot of time working with people, connecting with them, because, uh, because I, I was not sure what to do there. 
it was such a dilemma like how do you take your knowledge of architecture and build something there so it had to come out of that land so that was my query and and that created a connection and 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 it never really left me and and it was always this idea of how you can work with people how you can make your practice and your and your service more you know you can take it to people so that was one way i thought this is it this is the reason i try to learn myself a lot uh, through these connections and um the delta project it definitely came out of the research that we were doing in the coastal areas for the sharjah triennial inheriting wetness what we call and it was actually trying to understand the rights of the future generation in this very precarious landscape which is constantly moving and it's very dynamic and while doing that we met a lot of families who are landless homeless living in these sandbars and really felt that we need to do something about this try to come up with certain ideas and in these areas where we have these movement of land uh, people generally live in houses which are quite flat back anyway Uh, so these are wooden frame and corrugated mm. sheet the moment there is land erosion they take their houses down and they move it to a different location uh, so this is already there so this mobile system already exists but the mobile system is not so easy to move much larger and also not affordable for landless homeless people so we tried to come up with a very affordable simple idea Uh, which is what we call kudibari which uh, kudi means tiny and bari means house so this kudibari project came about which is about 300 to 350 pounds each house uh, with steel joints and bamboo structure space frame structure very simple quite easy to move and dismantle and relocate so this is what we tried to introduce and started uh, actually from the pandemic time when we didn't really have much work in the office uh so we started working on this project we made a prototype and then we took it to the sandbars we tried it out now we are building 100 houses and so we are already working in many different locations in bangladesh building these houses so it's it's really exciting and it's more rewarding when you see the smile in people's faces and they talk about what they want to do who they want to invite <laughs> it's really fascinating and it's really really rewarding who is the client how did you manage to build 100 of these houses the first houses we uh, funded ourselves it was a research from our office one prototype in dhaka then we took uh, four houses in a sandbar in the lower meghna region which is close to the coastal area and then after that uh, we pitched for funding uh, and the swiss embassy and the swiss government actually decided to fund uh, 100 houses for us and so at the moment we have that funding and with that fund we are trying out this is also part of the research actually where we are trying this house in different locations because in bangladesh it's all about water but even the waters have their characters <laughs> and it's very different in all different locations We also have flash flooding that we get in the northern part where India has a barrage which is called the Tista barrage and the Tista barrage actually opens uh, during the monsoon season and we immediately get flash flooding uh, all the houses get flooded inundated under water so that is a problem we haven't been able to resolve with India but you know we have to find solutions to how we can help people So this house which is a two story house actually 
it gives them that opportunity when they can actually take all their belongings to the upper deck and let the flood water go. And so in many different ways, we are trying to yeah, work it out. So do you actually show people how to do it or how do people learn to assemble them? Yes, that's a very slow process in a way. We, first of all, we go to a location. Generally, we work with a collaborator, uh, mostly with, uh, with someone, some NGO or some form of agency who already has connection to that area, let's say. People on the ground. Yeah. So then we have a point of connection whom they trust. So once you go through someone like a partner, we call them partners, who are doing livelihood programs, the first action is to create a map of the village. And the map is actually done by the younger generation, like young boys and girls and the women, uh, everybody come together and make a map of the village because nobody has any map. Nobody knows how, what's the size of their houses, what's their plot. So we actually get the entire community together and then they decide whose house uh, should be the first one to be built. And quite often they go for the poorest of the poor and that's how we start with the first building. So once you build one and they can see what the building is all about, then everybody gets interested. And now after building one house, you can probably have 10 or 20 of them interested in having that. And um, in many ways, we try to use the materials that they already have. And they also give their own, you know, if they want to increase the size of the house or add more to it, they're welcome to do that. So we try to address those issues also to how to give them a proper planning. So it's something that together we create and we sit together and build it. And, and it's, it's been going on quite nicely in a way. Uh, I'll have to show images maybe at some point. <laughs> Yeah, we, we, yeah, we can put a link in the show notes because they're very striking as, as architectural work. So yeah, people should definitely check those out if they haven't seen them already. Also, there are a million Rohingya refugees around Cox's Bazar in southeast Bangladesh who were expelled from Myanmar. One of our previous guests, Anna Herringer, on episode six, has been working with people in the refugee camps there to build with mud, which is the material which is abundant there. You were working in the area too, I understand. Could you tell us about your work there? We are at the moment working on eight different projects uh, inside the camp and also outside the camp because there are two different people that needs to be focused. Uh, one is the refugees and the others are the host community, which are actually Bangladeshis, but for similar kind of economic background. And what has happened is that because of this influx of one million people, the people who were there living, they are also feeling, um, you know, minority in many ways because these were small villages and some of them even live inside the camps. The government of Bangladesh uh, has directed all the donor agencies and all the humanitarian agencies who are working there uh, to also have program, livelihood program for the host community because they've lost their livelihood because of this influx of refugees. Uh, So we are working on both sectors. For the refugees, we have built women-friendly centers, disability centers, so these kind of projects. And for the uh, host community, we have built aggregation centers where women bring their own fresh produce and sell to generate their own income. 
it's interesting what you talked about mud uh, is actually something inside the camps uh, there is a certain material that you are allowed to use and others not like you can uh, only use bamboo thatch plastic sheets and for the foundation cannot go too deep it has to be a very uh, shallow foundation because it used to be uh, or it is still a, a forest which um, was sort of taken down to make space for the refugees but uh, the government is always concerned about the forest that used to exist so there is a lot of re- reforestation and we did a lot of reforestation work also in the last year there is a lot of challenge working in in the refugee camps because of this material uh, pallet i think at times when you have a this constraints uh, or challenges innovation comes out so we did came up with the uh, nice ideas of building with bamboo and and steel joints as we've done for the kudibari structure so so yeah it's it's really um, interesting to work in the camps especially for the women friendly centers where you're working with the refugees it's a process of healing and the way we work there is also again through workshop so you connect with people you talk to them Uh, sitting together eating together and then creating models and sketches and drawings and they tell us that we need this we need that this could be nice you know the camps are very tiny rooms very dense situations so these spaces are like safe spaces for women where they just come here to have some space to breathe in many ways so we try to work with them and then once the design is done we show them the design they're absolutely happy about it <laughs> and then now at at this process and then we have to go through the process of getting approval looking into the material and then of course the construction so there are really nice moments and then also some challenging moments but you know that's refugee camp you mentioned bamboo and thatch and and thinking about natural materials one thing that some of our french guests have said that in France that there's a unbroken tradition of using natural materials which we don't quite have so much in the UK is it the same with using natural materials in Bangladesh is it a continuation of traditions that are still existing that you're now doing new things with or yeah how how does it work yeah i think once you get out of the city of dhaka or any other small towns the entire country is very agrarian very village uh, vernacular in many ways so if you go to the northern part of bangladesh which is more the pleistocene era earth which is really hard nice landscape you see two story mud houses beautiful mud houses the tradition still exists people still build with mud uh if you go to the coastal areas there's also mud houses but smaller scale because of the delta and the fragility of the soil and then we have some indigenous people who are living in the hill tracts of chittagong close to the myanmar border in the arakan range there uh, the indigenous people generally use bamboo and stilts so i think vernacular is very rich and very much present but the places where we are trying to work uh, especially in the coastal areas where people have no houses they just don't have the means and also the knowledge of how you can create something which is not static in a place that it can be mobile that's where we are trying to create something where it can become the new vernacular in many ways i really feel that you know you can 
make these minimal uh, intrusions. It's almost like doing an invasive surgery, but doing very slowly that people really take it in without being too imposing. So that's why it's important for us to have these conversations and then to develop something which is a process of co-creation. So I'd like to bring the conversation back now to the context into which many of our listeners live and work. Can you elaborate on how these principles apply if you're working in the global north in a city like London or in the Netherlands? What are your observations? As I said, the contexts are different. The context in Bangladesh, it has its uniqueness, both geographically, climatically, also economic uniqueness in many ways. In the global north, I'm sure um, the challenges are different than what we face here. What my understanding is, especially when we are living in this era of climate change and the entire world is actually one big family, we are connected, even sitting in our living rooms and in our bedrooms, um, uh, talking to each other, sharing ideas. And the climate crisis, uh, which is a crisis of our existence, is not really uh, bounded by political um, lines. It's a common crisis. And for that reason, I feel that, you know, you cannot divide between south and north or east or west. It's everybody's problem. So we need to really work together to find solutions to wherever it's necessary. Why isn't Bangladesh's problem, let's say, a problem of UK? (laughs) So that's my question. (laughs) Very good point. So let me ask you something else. What about retrofitting buildings? We have a big campaign on here at the AJ called Retro First, which has put the whole issue of the need to not demolish and to work with what we've got really front and center on the industry radar. Should we be building at all? And how does this apply in Dhaka? I can understand when you're working in the Delta that people need basic housing, but what about in a big city? Yeah. Absolutely. I totally agree. I mean, the lesser we construct, the better, I think. We need to really think of the profession differently. Uh, We need to really rethink the way we do architecture. There's so much has been built over the last few decades to build more. And especially in Bangladesh's case, we're taking up agricultural land, which I think is is an absolute crime because you're taking away food for the sake of making industries and, and whatnot. But in terms of the city of Dhaka, and I have done a few retrofitting projects, recycling materials, and we've done that from the very beginning of our practice. But in the city of Dhaka, which is growing very fast, speculation is really high. And constantly the prices are going up in the land price. And so if you have a two-story house and you can build a 12-story residential building there, you would definitely take down the two-story building and build something there. And if you do not have proper policies, then there's no way of keeping these buildings from the colonial time or even from uh, the Mughal times. So the older part of the city has been destroyed in many ways. You also see that a building which was built maybe 20 to 30 years ago just because the rules have changed, now you can build higher, immediately they bring it down and build new. So that's something absolutely horrible, but there is no rule against it. But I am absolutely for retro first idea. Well, you know, this still happens here in London too. 
not to that extreme, but it's exactly the same phenomenon. What's your experience of the reuse of materials and, and waste streams? Is, is that something you've been working with? We've worked with a lot of materials which we tried to reuse. As I was mentioning, that there were a lot of buildings that were torn down in the older part of the city. We took those older bricks and we've reused them. We've reused stone, which were sort of thrown away. And then re- and so basically you try to take these materials and reuse them in in buildings. But I think the problem is far greater than just reusing. It's also about understanding how we source material. Even in our education, we were never told how to source material, to actually understand where the raw material is coming from, how the production system is going, where is it being made, where is it being sent. So this whole long supply chains and anthropogenic materials, the material flow, all these things are completely absent from our uh, architecture discourse and construct. And we just, you know, architects are always looking for new material, new uh, newness, this fetish of newness, <laughs> that needs to be really rethought and re-understood because um, the stockpile of waste is increasing everywhere. Every country has an enormous stockpile of waste, not just construction, but all kinds of stockpile of waste, which is not sinking back into the system. And so this is your new material. This is what we should be working with. And that needs to be a collaborative way of working, I feel. We need to have collaboration, not just between architects, but also from all different sectors to come up with ideas how we can make use of this stockpile of waste, which can then sink back into the system. Because one thing you must remember is that recycling is actually prolonging the shelf life. At the end, it has to go back to the uh, sink back to the earth, which is not happening. So. There's a lot to do, a lot of conversation, I think, around this. We touched on education there, and, and we, we talked about your teaching at Harvard to Delft. Do you think architectural education today is fit for purpose in an era of climate emergency? I think the paradigms are shifting in this era of pandemic, now with a new war, who knows where it's going, and the climate crisis is there. The paradigm is shifting from industrial era to a more digital technological era. And with all these issues that we are dealing with, the education system definitely has to change. There are many universities and schools who are trying to address it, but I think it needs to to be far more than just adding a course here and adding a course there, sending students to a third world country or to the south to to have some understanding it has to go beyond that it just cannot be you know that's not just good enough so i think it needs to go much deeper than just sending a few students to do some hands-on built workshop which at the end i don't know how much it really helps the people who are the beneficiaries at the end since i've taught in many different even in bangladesh and also in the u.s and europe you can see that the students want something different. They want, they understand the issues. They're far more aware of uh, the problems, what they're facing, and that's their future in many ways. And I do not think that our pedagogy is still prepared to give them those answers. There's a lot of activity here in the UK, and I totally agree with you. The thirst for information among students and young architects 
has transformed the whole discourse. It's changed in the last three to four years, and the schools are playing catch-up, but they need to catch up fast. And we can't wait also for the students to be at the top of their careers. We have to solve these problems as soon as possible. Marina, you've recently been shortlisted as part of a team with John McCaslin and Partners for the LSE building. So tell us about that. How did that collaboration come about? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Well, it was after the Sohn Medal. I was in London for a few days, spending time with my brother and his family. That's when John gave me a call asking me if I would be interested in collaborating. I said, well, why not? Let's see. <laughs> you know, I've never shied away from opportunities that came my way. You know, I never plan anything, but if there's something that comes my way, I try to take that on and push my limits. So why not? <laughs> so I went and saw the site. It's a nice building. That's how it all uh, started. And basically we sent in our proposal or the expression of interest and then we got shortlisted. Now let's see how it goes. <laughs> Exciting. And what else is in your pipeline coming up this year? Yeah, well, you know, as I mentioned that we have these 100 houses to build, which we are doing actually through our foundation that we have created, which is the Foundation for Architecture and Community Equity. In short, we call it FACE, FACE Bangladesh. And so they're doing the 100 houses. We are also working in the refugee camps. Uh, We have Uh, several projects running at the moment. But we are also designing two residential uh, buildings here in Dhaka, high-end, by the way. Uh, So, so yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, the fact that um, one house has 30,000 Dhaka per square feet and the other house costs 30,000 Dhaka. So that's the extent. (laughs) But you need to do those projects too because you need to run your office. And and also we get a certain, you know, being architects, we do want to do nice buildings as well um, if the opportunity comes our way. So... So, so there are a couple of different projects. We are designing or building a mosque, actually, which is uh, towards completion. So, yeah, a lot of projects going on at the moment. Thank you very much, Marina. That was just wonderful. It's fantastic to hear what you're doing. I lived and worked in Brazil, in the satellite cities of Brasilia, for a few years after I finished my degree. And so... While I don't know anything about working in a Delta, I do have some notions about very basic shelter needs. And the work you're doing is so worthwhile and so needed. We will look forward to following how the first 100 houses go and what comes next. Thank you so much. Thank you. No, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Our next climate champion will be structural engineer Hanif Kara of AKT2. If you're enjoying Climate Champions, please rate us and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. It helps people find us so we can build an audience. You can find the show notes for this and previous episodes at architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.